when Joshua led the Israelites uh, over the Jordan River uh, before they conquered Jericho, God told him to do something a little out of the ordinary. He said, I want you to choose 12 people and pick 12 stones out of the Jordan River, and I want you to pile them up as a memorial. And the reason God had Joshua do that and the Israelites do that is because he knew that we have a tendency as we go forward to grow a little cold to the extraordinary. We have the tendency to forget where we came from and what we were, what we used to be. And it's when we remember the former things that we find our current, our present, or our new reality to be that much sweeter, that much better. It makes who we are in the new reality given to us that much more powerful and meaningful. And just as the Israelites needed to remember what they were and what they came from in order for the new to be that much sweeter and that much more powerful in their lives, we need that too. And I think that that's sometimes the reason when we come to holidays like Easter or like Christmas And we know that they're supposed to be special times. We know that they're supposed to be meaningful times. We know that they're supposed to be fresh and new in our lives. We find it hard because we do it all the time. You know, every year it's Christmas again. Every year it's Easter again. And we read very similar passages and we sing familiar songs. And if we're not careful, uh, we tend to treat that as just kind of the normal thing that we do around this time of year. And it can lose the impact that we need. It can lose the impact that God desires for it to be in our lives if we're not careful. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to journey back and I want us to find some commonality with some of the figures and events that surround Christ's Passion Week. That surround our Savior's final moments on this earth, His final moments of His mission that He had, that He went about and that He brought to completion at this time 2,000 years ago. We have a tendency, I think, to look at the characters surrounding Christ's final week and, and shake our heads at their lack of faith and shake our heads at their belligerence. We look at figures like Peter as he denied the Lord and, and we just sigh and we, th- we think, how could he do that after all that he saw and after all that he knew and after all of, of his boldness that he exhibited from time to time? Where was that? How could he have done that? We think, how could Judas betray his close friend after all he saw Jesus do? And we shake our heads at those people and we shake our heads at the crowds that cried, crucify Him, crucify Him. And we, we think, how in the world could they have done that? And we forget that in many cases, many times, in many ways, we are just as guilty as all of those people were. We are just as capable of making the same tragic, unthinkable decisions. We are just as culpable as all of those people were. So I want us to journey back and remember who we were apart from Christ and His saving work in our lives. Remember that but for His grace active in our lives, we certainly would have made the same 
disastrous, unthinkable decisions. And as we know in our lives today, even with His grace active in our lives, we still do the unthinkable as we return to sin time and time again in our lives. So, find yourself in the characters of the narratives that we are so familiar with around this time of year, around the Easter celebration. Find yourselves aligned with the decisions and choices that were made, as unthinkable as they appear. See yourself right there with those people. See yourself in their footsteps. See yourself in their mindset and in their heart. Because so often, we have to admit, we're really just the same as they are. And you know, the, the tragedy starts as it relates to Christ's final week, really with the betrayal of one closest to Him, with the betrayal of Judas. We know from Scripture that he certainly had already made many questionable choices as he often put his hand into the money bag and stole from the treasury of the small band of disciples in Christ's ministry. So his character was certainly in question. He berated the worship of one forgiven much and said this, this should have been sold, this, this perfume should have been sold and given to the poor because it would have fetched a lot of, of income from that. And, and why was it wasted? We know that he was just upset that he didn't have the chance to uh, steal money that that could have produced. But certainly, Judas's fatal flaw was in his betrayal of his master and his teacher, his friend, his Savior, if he would have let Jesus be that. And it's easy for us to judge Judas. It's easy for us to, to cry out, in anger and in, in our own righteous indignation and to be a little self-righteous as we look at someone like Judas. But we need to take a step back and realize and remember that every time you and I choose self over the Savior, every time we choose to give in to the temptation of sin in whatever form it might come, we are instantly aligned with Judas. And we too are choosing to betray love and the source of life. We too are choosing to betray our Savior in place of, of honor and in place of allegiance. We, in those moments, choose self and self-centeredness and self-exaltation. And we choose sin over Jesus. And we're just as guilty as He was. We too are a betrayer of innocent blood every time we give ourselves over to sin. Fast forward through the ending of, of Christ's time on earth and His mission as Messiah, and we find Peter, the rock, right? The one who said, all these others may betray and deny You, Lord, but I never will. I will go to death for You. I will never deny You. That was in response to Jesus saying, You will deny me, not just that you know me, not just once, but Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me thrice. And friends, we are just as guilty of denying that we know the Lord. We are just as guilty of denying His place, His rightful place as Lord over our lives when again, we choose to put anything or anyone in front of Him. Anytime we, we choose something 
to be just as important as Him. We don't even have to make it more important. Anytime we, we put anything or anyone on the same level as the Lord Jesus, as first and foremost in our lives, we are denying His rightful place as Lord and Master. We are denying the devotion that we so often claim to have. We are denying the supreme allegiance to the Savior that He deserves and that we need to have. After Jesus was betrayed by Judas and after He was denied by Peter, we know that He was taken before Pilate. And we know that it was customary for Pilate to give the people a choice. Who would they like returned back to them? Who would they like pardoned and released? So that's what he did with Jesus, hoping to be absolved of any personal guilt in seeing Jesus sentenced unfairly because he had already said he found no cause for this man to be put to death. So he put Jesus in front of the crowd. The crowd gathered in Jerusalem, stirred up by the religious leaders. The very same crowd, it would have absolutely contained people that five days earlier had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with shouts of praise, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And they waved palm branches, a customary sign of welcoming a a conquering King. And now, five days later, the same crowd in response to Pilate saying, who do you want released to you? Jesus, the King of the Jews, your King, or Barabbas? a known murderer, a known terrorist, really, of the day. And they said, away with Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Give us Barabbas! And we shake our heads and our jaws drop and and we say, how could they be so fickle? What was wrong with them? How horrible of this, this crowd! What were they thinking? What a terrible group of people! I'm glad that I'm not that way. I mean, we may not say that, but it's easy for our our heart to start to say that kind of a thing. But we have to once again take a, a hard, painful step back and be objective and realize that often, time and time again throughout our lives, time and time again even throughout our day, we choose other people and other things to have put in front of us We choose other people and other things that we choose uh, to embrace instead of embracing our Lord and Savior. We put other things or other people in front of Him and say, no, give us that. We look for other things and other people to fulfill us, to find meaning in, to satisfy us, to fill the longing of our hearts that only Jesus can fill, that only Jesus should fill. Only He should have first in and over our hearts. But so often we, we vie for other things. And we fill our attention with other things. We're consumed with other things and other people. And we effectively are saying the same thing that crowd did. No, away with Him. I don't need Him. I don't want Him. I want this. I want that. Give me that. That's what I'm looking for. And we're just as guilty in those moments. Fast forward to Golgotha. Jesus is on the cross. And Scripture tells us that with Him, there are two thieves crucified. One on His left, one on His right. 
And though at first both were participating in the mocking of Jesus along with the crowd gathered, one of them decides, wait a second, something's not right here. And miraculously, God begins to work in this thief's heart. Think about it. This thief is dying alongside Jesus on the cross, and yet, the Spirit of God is working in his heart, causing him to see Jesus as he really is. Innocent. The Savior. The Savior this thief needs. And I I just picture the dialogue and the encounter there. And I see the thief's face start to change. His countenance starting to change. And what was a a twisted grin in mockery of of Jesus and joining in with the accusations, I I see his, his whole demeanor change. And I see him looking at Jesus as he is suffering and he's seeing Jesus suffering. And he's thinking about himself and he thinks about Jesus there next to him and he sees the disparity. And at some point, he actually speaks to Jesus after also telling the other thief to stop the mockery. And he says, don't you realize this man is innocent? We deserve to be here. We're guilty. We are receiving the just penalty for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And, and then he shifts to Jesus and he says, Lord, would you remember me? Remember me. He, he's saying in those words to Jesus, I know I deserve to be here. And I know I was mocking you just a, a moment earlier, but, but now I see something differently. I see now that you have no business being here. I, I need to be here. I deserve to be here. This is what I get. But you are innocent. You shouldn't be here at all. You're the one that we all need. You're the one I need. And I see that now, and it may be too late. And and I know I have no business at all asking this. I know I don't deserve any mercy from you, but I'm asking anyway. When you come into your kingdom, Lord, you may die here with me even though you don't deserve to, but I believe, I, I don't know where this is coming from, but I have faith I have belief that you're going to come through this. You're going to conquer this. And even if you die here, that's not going to be the end for you. I believe you're going to come into your kingdom because you are the rightful king. And when you do that, please, would you remember me and let me be there with you? Would you have mercy on me? Would you pity me, please? And the Scripture tells us that Jesus, already having suffered, already gasping for breath at this point, turned to the thief and said, Truly, I tell you, this hour, you will be with me in paradise. Mercy, grace, pity, salvation extended to this thief that didn't deserve it. 
And in this moment, we see the whole point of the crucifixion. That though it was all of our sin that put Jesus on the cross, the ones there, guilty at the time, and us today, you and me, it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross just as, just as it was theirs. And just as it was the Romans who had the nails in their hands and the hammer to drive those nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, so too, we, by our sin, inherited and chosen, also hold the nails that put Jesus on the cross. It was the nails that were in our hands that put Him there. It was the hammer in our hand, cold and grim, that fastened Him there. But it was His love for us, His grace and His mercy for us that kept Him there. And though we are just as guilty, though we are to blame just as much as the Romans and the Jews of that day, we too can be aligned with the thief on the cross that heard, yes, this day, this hour, you will be with me in paradise. Yes, you can have mercy. Yes, you can be forgiven. We, we are aligned with Judas. We are aligned with Peter. We are aligned with the crowd. But by God's grace and mercy, we too can be aligned with that thief who received mercy, who received forgiveness. And we can hear from our Savior, forgiven, forgiven. You and I can be forgiven. I've hidden in the garden I've denied you with my very lips God, I fall down to my knees With a hammer in my hand You look at me Arms open Open. 
beginning of the message, I said that it's remembering the former things that make the present and new reality that much sweeter, that much better, that much more powerful in our lives. And again, the same is true for us as we think about our salvation and all that it costs the Lord Jesus. And as we think about all that is true of every one of us outside of His saving work and outside of His miraculous grace, outside of all He did for us. We would be helpless and hopeless forever without Him intervening and without Him enduring what He did. And Paul captures that in his incredible masterpiece of a chapter uh, of Ephesians chapter 2. The whole book is a masterpiece, of course, but especially chapter 2. It's just the capstone of it all. I love what he says there and, and the way he reminds us all of what we all were before Christ and all, all that we would be still outside of Christ. But for His grace, we would be helpless, hopeless, and we would be completely, constantly guilty without any hope of a rescued reality without any hope of a statement, you're forgiven. Ephesians 2, 1-7, through the Apostle Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is the verdict of all humanity. 
That's the reality in which we all, by rights, should live in and exist in and just stay in. That's what we all were. That's what we all are outside of Christ. That's what we all deserve to know and to have as the end of our story. But, that's not the end of our story through Christ and because of Him. That's not the end of the story because of what we're celebrating today, Resurrection Day. Look at what Paul says. But God. It's just music to your ears, isn't it? But God. Though that is true of you, though that's what you deserve to to have as your epitaph, it should stop right there. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Friends, brothers and sisters, God Almighty, the One who should be our judge, the One that we should only know as judge, reached down and picked up our our dead, decaying, rotting spiritual corpses and reanimated them, breathed life back into them, and, and didn't just make us alive where we were at, but instead joined us with the resurrected, victorious, conquering, exalted Christ, His Son, our Savior, raised us up with Him seated us with Him in the place of honor and exaltation and glory. In glory. None of that we should ever be able to know and experience. None of that we could ever deserve. None of that we could ever earn. This is the very definition of grace. And it's on display in our lives every single day for all of us who are in Christ. And that's what Paul says next. The reason that he did all that, because it certainly doesn't make sense, right? That, that doesn't make sense at all. That's not how life works. That's not how we work. That's not how anyone operates in the human realm. That's totally outside the norm for us. That doesn't make sense as we define logic. It, it just totally blows it out, right? So, why did God do all that? What was the, the chief end of all that? What was the goal in, in such extravagant, radical, shocking grace? He tells us He did all that so that in the coming ages, and that's in every age to come, every future generation of people, that they would be able to look back on this incredible act of divine grace so that in the coming ages he the god of grace might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us those that deserve to stay dead right toward us in or through Christ Jesus that is the reality that the resurrection of Christ makes possible for every believer in Him. I hope, I hope that is your reality today. If it's not, it can be by you turning to the risen Savior, crucified for you, but the One that did not stay crucified, that did not stay dead, that rose from death, conquering death, offering that victory, offering that exaltation to you to partner in in that with Him and to experience along with Him. Well, 
what does that mean for us? Once you've received that, once you share in this incredible reality of resurrection, once you know that you too have been raised with Christ and seated with Him in heaven, seated at the place of honor, sharing in His glory, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for, for me? What is the result of that? What should our response be to that? Well, again, the Apostle Paul provides that for us. And in Romans 6, 1-11, through he says this, starting in verse 1, what should we say then? Well, that's a good question, right? In light of all of this, and in light of understanding and realizing this was done for us, and this is what resurrection really is all about, it wasn't just a historical fact. It was meant for us to experience and, and know and walk in and share in. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not, Paul says. That would be just totally crazy, ludicrous, right? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we do that? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, all of us, may walk in newness of life. Not just staying in the old way of going about things. Not just staying in the former things. The same carnal living. The same fleshly living. Living for self and sin without any restriction. Without any uh, effort to, to repent of that and, and not go back to that. No. Walk in newness of life. That's the goal. That's the intention of all of this. That's why Christ was raised from the dead for us. So that we would be able to step into new life. So that we would be able to walk in newness of life. Not just in the, the old, sinful, sin-dominating pattern of life. Just like the song that we heard a few moments earlier, the song Forgiven by Crowder. What a powerful song that is. And I love the line that says, because we've been forgiven, let us say goodbye to every sin because we are forgiven. See, that's the result of all of this. We say goodbye to sin. We say, sin, you're not going to have dominion over me anymore. Sin, you're not going to have first place in my life anymore. No, that place belongs to Jesus, the One that was crucified and risen for me, all so that I could step into new life. All so that I would be able to choose to live for Him and not just be helpless and hopeless, carried along with the, the current of sin and self any longer. And Paul continues in Romans 6, and he says, For if we have been united with Him in the likeness of His death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. It's just like he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live. But not I, Christ lives in me. And the life I do now live in the flesh, my physical life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, 
We're, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. That's one of the, the blessed parts of, of death for any believer in Christ. They're freed finally and fully from ever being able to sin again. And, and that certainly is a gift. Paul says a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, we're celebrating that today, will not die again. Death no longer rules over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all time. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And here's where he makes the application. Here's where it's personal. So you too consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the result of all that we're celebrating and commemorating, not just today, but all through Holy Week, all through the Passion Week of our Savior. That's the result of the cross. That's the result of the empty tomb. And that is the only fitting response for all of us. Not just on Easter Sunday, every moment of every day. You see, my friends, the resurrection is a real-time reality for us. The resurrection is a real-time reality for us. And it's with that thought, as we start to wrap up our time together today, that I want to turn your attention to another amazing passage of Scripture, 1 Peter 1, 3-9, written by the one who did, in fact, deny his Lord, his Savior, but by the grace of that Lord and Savior was not left there. He found restoration. He found reconciliation and redemption. And he never got over it. And may we never get over that either. Here's what he writes. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. A constant hope. Remember, the resurrection is a real-time reality for us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That means, friends, that no coronavirus is going to be able to affect or alter or disintegrate the hope and reality of resurrection that is yours and mine throughout every moment and every breath of our lives. It can't impede it. It can't do anything to it. It's a secure thing. It's a promised hope. It's a living hope. It's an active hope. And nothing that we find ourselves in during these days of difficulty and discouragement and uncertainty and anxiety and all that is the new normal in which we're living, none of it can affect in any way, the reality of resurrection that is yours and mine through Jesus Christ, all by grace and mercy from our great God. That's why we can still have hope. That's why we can still know joy. And that's what the world around us and even our brothers and sisters among us need to see. That's what your children need to see, mom and dad. They need to see 
a powerful hope that goes far beyond COVID-19 and all that, that it's interrupted in their lives and in your lives. They need to see an anchor with their mom and dad that they too can know and have and hold on to. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you where nothing can, can cause it to perish and nothing can rob it of its richness and its joy and its power. You are being guarded, Peter says, by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And you rejoice in this, and well we should, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, that it may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are actively, presently, receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. My friends, I don't want to minimize what some of you or your loved ones may be going through. I don't want to minimize the, the frustration and, and the discouragement and even the depression uh, that all of these events and, and difficult circumstances and unparalleled days uh, are causing and, and all that might be true in your life or in the lives of those around you. I know that that stuff's real. I know it's a painful period right now. But as I just read, and, and as I hope that you were just uh, filled with encouragement as, as you followed along in your copy of God's Word or heard me read, that though there are various trials in our lives that come and go, and that the Lord allows all of which are meant to, to refine our character and mold and shape our character, um, all of which won't interfere with the, the promise that is yours and mine, through the resurrection of Christ, I hope that you will be able, through all of the days in which we live and, and find ourselves in right now, and, and all of the, the new normal that is very much not normal as we define normal living, I hope that what Peter says uh, is absolutely possible will be possible in your life, that, that you will still be able to rejoice in this time, that you will still be able to be filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy he talked about, because you and I, friend, brother, sister, are presently receiving daily the goal of our faith. The salvation of our very souls. Purchased for us on the cross and validated or proven by the resurrection. The cross paid our sin debt. The debt and payment was, was accepted and fulfilled by God the Father through the empty tomb. That proved it was all accepted. That proved the payment was good. And that is your good, and it's my good. Be filled with hope. Be filled with joy. Be filled with the inexpressible happiness that, that nothing around you can diminish or affect, and that nothing else can provide you. It's all found in our risen Savior. Rejoice in that. Celebrate it. Proclaim it. The world needs to hear it now more than ever. Let's go forward and do that. Thank you.